We as humans used to get our truth through direct communication with heaven, through inner intuition, and through symbolism in nature. That was the original Word of God. When these abilities became polluted and stopped functioning, God provided another way for people to find their way back to truth. It was less direct, but God could work with it to guide people to heaven. And that method was written revelation, the written Word of God, in which spiritual knowledge could be preserved and passed down. Today, we have the Bible and other sacred texts throughout the world that have been handed down for thousands of years. But the Bible refers back to more ancient scriptures, and researchers like Joseph Campbell have noticed that there are common threads in ancient mythologies from all over the world. And Swedenborg refers to a set of ancient religious writings he calls the ancient word. As spiritual intuition in the human race was disappearing, a particular group of people was called by God to preserve heavenly knowledge about God and spiritual reality. This group is referred to in the Bible by the name of Enoch and they set about crafting ancient knowledge into a set of teachings that could be written and taught. So now we could learn concepts from outside of ourselves. The ancient word was written in pure allegorical symbolism or correspondences. The earliest people saw all of physical creation as an allegory about God and spiritual life. So the first written literature reflected the power of story and imagery to get deep concepts across. But understanding that literature took a willingness to think spiritually rather than physically. And as the human race grew more materialistic and power-hungry, the deeper meanings of the symbolic imagery and stories were lost, turning into many different world mythologies that were taken more and more literally and physically. So that's a problem. And to fix it, we need a reintroduction to the language of correspondences, that ancient language of symbolism and allegory. With that knowledge, we can discover universal truth in the Bible. We can also see those same threads of truth in other ancient stories and symbols. We can find common bonds in the grand underlying story of humanity's spiritual journey. For an overview of religious eras throughout human history, see the spiritual history of the human race. For the written word as actual technology that connects us with heaven and God, see what the Bible is. For the preservation of the ancient wisdom written in the afterlife, see where stories are kept in heaven. But to dig into the origins of the ancient word, the style of the ancient word, and how to look for the ancient word, stay tuned. Origins of the ancient word. Yeah, what do we find this ancient word? Well, the origins of the ancient word are briefly described in a cryptic couple of sentences in the middle of this long genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch, wa Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, because God took him. Very mysterious. And these verses have intrigued people for thousands of years because every other character in that genealogy, every single one is said to have been born and they had children and they died. It's just Enoch who didn't die. Instead, he walked with God and then God took him, whatever that means. A lot of people have taken this to mean that one person named Enoch entered the spiritual world somehow without dying. But Swedenborg learned a different way of understanding it. So this genealogy isn't about individual people and their families. This is a symbolic genealogy of the stages of humanity's religious thought. So as the spiritual understanding gradually declined 
from this heavenly Garden of Eden state of mind, this genealogy played out. For more about that shift, see our show, The Meaning of Adam and Eve. Again, these are not individual people, these are states of mind. And also, the modern Cain and Abel, and about how something within the human heart and mind killed something else. Back to our genealogy. Every character in the genealogy represents an era of religious understanding that began, so it was born, then it ended and died, but it had provided seeds of thought that turned into a whole different religious mindset that followed. This is the children of each character mentioned. Each name represents a mindset and all the people involved in that mindset. But Enoch represented something in that process that had to not end. Because if it did, humanity would have completely lost all of its connection with God and with heaven, and you got to have that or it's over. So Enoch is this group of people who made sure that all spiritual knowledge was not lost as humanity was losing its direct heavenly intuition. Swedenborg wrote a little bit more about this. There were at that time people who developed a theology out of the things perceived by the earliest church and the churches that followed. So they developed theology out of what was probably an oral tradition. They designed it to serve as a standard by which everyone could judge what was good and true. The people who did this were called Enoch, and what they did was symbolized by the words, and Enoch walked with God. They also used the name for the theology or set of teachings itself, which is what the name Enoch teach means. So that group of people and the work that they were engaged in was the beginning of what you could now call doctrine, or this is teachings you learn from somebody else or from a text instead of getting them through intuition or, or revelation or dreams. This is the beginning of sort of a middleman, a theological middleman. This group called Enoch, they were, they were cool. They had great wisdom uh, compared to what came later, but compared to the people who came before, those stages of humanity before, their wisdom wasn't quite as clear. Swedenborg describes it here. He was no more because God took him, means that this doctrine was preserved for use by future generations. The case with Enoch was that he took what the earliest church perceived and reduced it to a doctrinal system. A forbidden thing at that time. Recognizing from perception, after all, is completely different than learning from doctrine. So here's a little bit more about the comparison between those two kinds of learning, doctrinal versus perception. People who have the gift of perception have no need to learn by way of doctrinal formulas what they already know. When we already know how to think effectively, we do not need an artificial system to teach us how. Using such a system would destroy our ability to think effectively. People who recognize what is good and true on the basis of perception receive that intuition from the Lord by an internal route. Those who recognize it on the basis of doctrine receive their knowledge by an external route, the physical senses. The difference is like that between light and darkness. But God is interested in us succeeding. So when one system fails, God is always providing another one that's going to work in its place. This is from Secrets of Heaven. It was foreseen, however, that the perceptiveness of the earliest church would come to an end and that people thereafter would learn from doctrine how to identify truth and goodness. In other words, they would travel through the dark and arrive at light. In consequence, it says here that God took him, which is to say that God preserved perception for the use of future generations. 
I was given the opportunity, in fact, to learn firsthand what perception became among the people called Enoch. I experienced it as something generalized and dim and lacking a certain distinctness, since under these circumstances the mind turns its gaze outward to focus on doctrinal issues. So Swedenborg exploring the actual phenomenology of where perception was for them at that point. We actually compare these two kinds of learning in our episode, How to Find True Intuition, and we talk there about how we can turn back in the direction of this inner perception, because it's preserved, we just got to find a way to get back there. You may have heard, since we're talking so much about Enoch, you may be saying, hey, what about the book of Enoch? What is that? I love imagining this group of people represented by the name Enoch in the book of Genesis, Uh, a, a group of people that were called to this mission of gathering heavenly knowledge before it disappeared from human intuition. And that effort would have led to the first written word of God um, that would be needed by future generations in humanity. Now, the name Enoch today is also well known because of this manuscript that's been found called the Book of Enoch or the Book of Enoch the Prophet. And it's full of these um, highly dramatic symbolic stories, which makes me wonder if it really does have its origins in the ancient word. Um, because Swedenborg says that the ancient word was full of this kind of language, very uh, symbolic divine parables. I found it fascinating to read the book of Enoch while thinking about this character named Enoch as a group of people, uh, symbolizing a group of people who were doing this mission for the sake of uh, the future of humanity. Here's a couple of quotes from the book of Enoch. Enoch, a righteous man who was with God, answered and spoke while his eyes were open and while he saw a holy vision in the heavens. That just says to me, this was this work was being done while this group of people still had access to their, their spiritual sight, um, ability to uh, interact with heaven and gather knowledge from uh, a heavenly source before that disappeared. This the angels showed me. From them I heard all things and understood what I saw, that which will not take place in this generation, but in a generation which is to succeed at a distant period on account of the elect. You could say these people were elected to do this mission, and they were gathering this knowledge, um, not for the sake of themselves right at that time, but for the sake of the future, when humanity would really need this new way of connecting with spiritual knowledge and heaven and God. And one more quote, before all these things, Enoch was concealed, nor did any one of the sons of men know where he was concealed, where he had been and what had happened. That makes me think of that mysterious line in the book of Genesis about Enoch who walked with God and then was not because God took him. Um, This idea of um, kind of being uh, mysterious and secretive. These people seem to have been doing this work kind of in secret because it was for the future, it was it was preserving something for a later time. He, Enoch, was wholly engaged with the holy ones and with the watchers in his days. And those names, the holy ones and the watchers, that could refer to angels that these people were working in partnership with. It could also um, refer to God's all-seeing divine providence, which is often 
uh, symbolized in the Bible by these fantastical creatures that watch over things. I, Enoch, was blessing the great Lord and King of peace. And behold, the watchers called me Enoch, the scribe. So this was being done by these people in service to God for the sake of God's purposes of providing humanity with a way to still learn about and connect with heavenly knowledge, um, even after that was disappearing from general human intuition. The style of the ancient word. Like, yeah, it's ancient. Does it have style? Swedenborg talks about these four different styles of writing that can be found in the modern Bible. We've got symbolic stories, historical stories that also have a deeper meaning, symbolic prophecy, and then the Psalms. And looking at number one and number three, two of these symbolic stories and symbolic prophecy give examples of the style in the ancient word. This is Swedenborg talking about the first of those particular styles or modes. He says in Secrets of Heaven, the mode of the people in the earliest church, their method of expressing themselves involved thought of the spiritual and heavenly things represented by the earthly mundane objects they mentioned. Not only did they express themselves in words representing higher things, they also spun those words into a kind of narrative thread to lend them greater life. This practice gave the earliest people the fullest pleasure possible. So they loved making these parables of wisdom. So it seems like a cool kind of storytelling and you might be a bit bummed that it's disappeared from the human race, but actually, even if it's been lost on earth, ancient scriptures still exist in the spiritual world. It was from learning about the ancient word that's in heaven that Swedenborg learned that part of the ancient word also still exists intact in the Bible. You've probably already read it. Here's three quotes about it. I've been told that the first seven chapters of Genesis are right there in that ancient word, so that not the slightest word is missing. And then in true Christianity, I've also heard from angels that the first chapters in Genesis, which deal with creation, Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eden, their children and descendants, right down to the flood, also Noah and his children, so this is stuff from Sunday school, are in that word as well. Moses copied these stories from that word. Plagiarism. And then from sacred scripture, Moses received the present accounts of creation of the gar- in the Garden of Eden, extending up to the time of Abram from the descendants of the earliest church. So this could actually, if that's how it went, that would reconcile the traditional belief that Moses wrote the Torah, or the first five books of the Old Testament, even though scholars have noticed very different writing styles in there, some seeming to come from more ancient cultures, as discussed in this article. But if we're saying, oh, well, yeah, part of that actually Moses got from ancient cultures, but he still wrote it all down, maybe both could be satisfied. There's just a certain feel to these early Genesis stories that Swedenborg says came directly from this ancient word. We've got these elements that they don't make literal physical sense, but they still hang together in this intriguing and satisfying story. It's very much a parable. It feels like it. So, but what about that third mode in the modern Bible, the symbolic prophecy? For example, that Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those that wait for me shall not be put to shame. Those kind of passages, this this very intense prophetic language, didn't come directly from the ancient word, but they were inspired by the style of it. This is from Secrets of Heaven. The prophetic mode. The inspiration for this was the mode used by the earliest church, a manner of writing the authors revered. But the prophetic mode lacks the cohesiveness and semi-historical quality of the earliest church's mode. 
it is choppy and almost completely unintelligible except on the inner level. So if you're feeling like it doesn't make sense, that's all right. Which holds profound secrets forming a well-connected chain of ideas. They deal with our outer and inner beings, the many stages of the church, heaven itself, and at the very core, the Lord. So even this stuff about licking the dust off your boots, the internal sense is about this deeply spiritual, sacred stuff that forms the core of life. And the Bible itself refers to more ancient scriptures and knowledge that came before. It's really fun to me when there's a piece of text that has almost like a mirror allowing you to see around a corner to something else you can't see, but there's just a hint of it in that mirror. The Bible actually does this with the ancient word. There are some quotations, just little snippets from the ancient word that are present in the biblical text. There are two of these in Numbers chapter 21. There's a quote from something called the Book of the Wars of the Lord, or the Book of the Wars of Jehovah. And there's a quote from another book called The Pronouncements. Swedenborg says it's often mistranslated as Proverbs, but it really should be something like prophetic pronouncements. And we actually get to see some text from these sources. Then in Joshua chapter 10 and in 2 Samuel chapter 1, there's references to a, called, a thing called the Book of Jasher, and there are quotations there again, two different quotes from the Book of Jasher. What we see in these quotes is something very much like the Bible, and in fact, there's one of those quotes is very much like material that's in Jeremiah 48, almost word for word. So it's very much like the Bible. There's another way that we can judge what was going on at that time, which is so interesting to me, which is that once you know something about correspondences, Swedenborg points out that there are little hints in the biblical text that people at the same time living outside of the Holy Land in the surrounding area were operating according to correspondences. Let me give you a few examples. Abram, long before the children of Israel even came about, were more than a twinkle in his eye, Abram met someone named Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem and was also a priest. And what did that king do when he met Abram? He gave him bread and wine and a blessing. Really interesting, just like our communion today. So it's just a little hint that he knew, of course, you know, why not figs and cheese or something? Uh, no, it was bread and wine because of the meaning that they have. There was another incident in which someone named Balaam was brought in from the east to curse the children of Israel, and Balaam evidently knew how to do curses, how to do blessings. He knew uh, the kind of sacrifices that you should do, of rams and bulls, and what kind of altar, and what kind of language. Uh, it seems very clear that Balaam knew correspondences. Perhaps the most interesting example to me is the Philistines, the Philistines who lived in the lower parts of the land of Canaan, uh, at one point captured the Ark of the Covenant, and it was causing all sorts of problems in the community. People were having hemorrhoids, there were rats, and they went to the priests and the diviners of the Philistines to find out what they should do. And the priests and diviners said, here's what you need to do. Take two milk cows that have never pulled a cart before— Take their calves away, create a new cart out of new wood, and fashion five golden hemorrhoids, of all weird things, and five golden rats, 
and put them on the cart along with the Ark of the Covenant. Those represent the five cities of the Philistines. And then watch which way the cart goes. And if it winds its way into Israel and people take it and sacrifice the cows using the wood of the cart, then we're going to be fine. No more hemorrhoids, no more rats. It's so specific. It's very obvious that the priests and diviners of the Philistines had a knowledge of correspondences, and that's why they specifically chose those animals and did exactly those things. And where did these people, where did Balaam and Melchizedek and the Philistine diviners get this amazing knowledge and wisdom about correspondences? Oh, Swedenborg says it was all from the ancient word. Looking for the ancient word. So we can find parts of the ancient word in the modern Bible, but we want more. Is it anywhere else in the collective works of humanity? Well, yeah, it's here. Joseph Campbell's studies, which he wrote about in these books, The Hero's Journey and The Hero with a Thousand Faces, plus other authors and other thinkers around the world, look at the fact that there's common themes running through all world religions and all mythologies. Why? Nobody, there was never a council where everybody got together. Swedenborg offers the explanation that that's because they all have a common ancient source, which is the ancient word. And Swedenborg learned more about the ancient word through talking with angels about it in heaven. Angels of heaven have informed me that the ancients had a word written entirely in correspondences, but that it was later lost. And they have said that this word is still preserved among them in heaven and is in use among ancients in the particular heaven where the people live who had that word when they were living in this world. Some of the ancients among whom that word is still in use in heaven came from the land of Canaan and its adjoining regions, from Syria, for example, from Mesopotamia, Arabia, Chaldea, Assyria, from Egypt, from Sidon, Tyre, and Nineveh, all regions inhabited by people who were devoted to symbolic worship and therefore to the knowledge of correspondences. Their wisdom in those days was based on that knowledge, and by means of it, they had an inner perception and communication with the heavens. The ones who were more deeply knowledgeable about the correspondences of that word were called the wise and the intelligent, though later they were called diviners and magi. For more about this ancient wisdom, which by the way, informed the wise men, maybe you've heard of them, who followed the star in the Christmas story, check out our show, The Wise Men, The Three Gifts, and The Star of Bethlehem. Like, how do they know to follow that? And if this was so useful and helpful, why in God's divine providence did the ancient word fade out and get replaced? Swedenborg says, Since the ancient word was full of a kind of correspondence that pointed in a remote way to heavenly and spiritual realities and therefore began to be distorted by too many people, too open to interpretation when you've got corruption, in the course of time under the Lord's divine providence, it vanished and eventually was lost. And they were given another word composed by means of less remote correspondences. This was done through the prophets among the children of Israel. 
All the same, that word, our word that we're familiar with, kept many of the place names in Canaan and in surrounding parts of the Middle East, with meanings similar to the ones they had in that earlier word. So some of the actors stayed the same. That's the reason Abram was ordered to go to that land and why his descendants from Jacob on were brought back into it. So there's a connection to that actual part of the word that ran through each. People of ancient cultures gradually lost the deeper meaning of these stories, and they started to take the stories themselves literally and started worshiping the symbols in them that were actually symbols of God's different attributes as individual deities. Swedenborg gives, you're probably familiar with ancient Greece as one example. The study of correspondences crossed into Greece, but turned into myths there, as you can see from the earliest Greek writings. In Greece, they turned to the attributes of God into so many deities. But it's cool to think that, oh, there was this core that all this human mythology and religion sprang up from. If, and, and we can get it back, too, because if we relearn the symbolism, we can begin to look for the remnants of the ancient word in these stories of mythology. When discussing correspondences, Swedenborg doesn't only investigate the text of the Bible. He also looks at imagery in Greek and Roman mythology. For Swedenborg, mythology contained spiritual symbolism because it derived from very ancient divine revelation that he calls the ancient word. For example, when Swedenborg discusses horses as meaning our understanding, he illustrates this with horses in several Greek and Roman myths. One is the Trojan horse, that ingenious contraption, the clever tactic of Odysseus, which was a giant fabrication of a horse that concealed Greek soldiers in its interior in order to conquer the city of Troy. Another example is perhaps the most famous horse in Greek and Roman mythology, the winged horse Pegasus, whose ability to fly symbolizes how the understanding can ascend to spiritual truth. Swedenborg particularly references the description of Pegasus found in the book The Metamorphoses by the Roman author Ovid. Here, that winged horse could stamp its hooves on the ground to create natural springs or fountains. And Swedenborg says that that water which spurts up symbolizes intelligence. Ovid describes Pegasus as creating a fountain in this way on Mount Helicon, which was home to the nine muses, the virgin daughters of Jupiter and memory, muses who inspire various intellectual and creative endeavors. Swedenborg also sees correspondences in some ancient religious practices from these cultures. So to illustrate the correspondence of fire as divine love, Swedenborg refers to the Vestal Virgins, who were Roman priestesses of Vesta, the goddess of the hearth. In the center of ancient Rome, in the Forum, there was a temple with a sacred fire, and it was a primary duty of these priestesses to ensure that this sacred fire burned perpetually. Swedenborg points out how the correspondences of fire and horses, love and wisdom, combine in the Greek sun god Helios, who rode his horse-drawn chariot that pulled the fiery sun across the sky from dawn to dusk. Swedenborg emphasized Egyptian hieroglyphs as surviving remnants of ancient word knowledge. And if it's there, it's got to be that you've got remnants as well in ancient symbolic writings and scriptures from all the other cultures of the world. That's got to be why Swedenborg left this intriguing tidbit. He says, 
Here I'm allowed to relate something previously unknown about the ancient word that used to exist in the Middle East before the Israelite word. It is still preserved among the peoples who live in Greater Tartary. It's there! Greater Tartary! Let's go! (laughs) So, we don't use that term anymore. In Swedenborg's day, it was used to describe a wide area in Asia. He says it's still out there. People have gone and tried to track it down, which is cool and, and worth doing, but overall, remember, there, the core of the ancient word, we have it. There are remnants of it all over the place. The complete document would have been carrying the same inner story as our modern Bible does, which is the same story in some ways as the hero's journey and all these other themes in humanity, which is the spiritual journey of the human race, the spiritual journey of Jesus Christ, which is the same as our own individual spiritual journey. That's the core of the ancient word, the one we have today, and what's going on for each of us individually. It's time to wrap it up. What did we learn today about this ancient word? So, learning about the ancient word can remind us that all the various spiritual worldviews are much more connected than we realize, and that God speaks to us through different means during different spiritual eras and different stages of the human spiritual journey, and even different ways within our own lives. You have differences in the the forms, in the scriptures, but that doesn't have to divide us like it does because it can still have the same core. And if we're looking for that deeper truth, we can find common ground, better connection with each other and with God. That's the point. That's why we have the Word in the first place, in whichever form it's in. And a tool that can help us get to that oneness is this ancient knowledge of correspondences. Swedenborg is just going on and on about, here's how you do correspondences, here's how you read it, because that revival of that knowledge was commissioned by Providence to bring us back to this state of mind and perception where we can see the truth from all these different sources. So, let's work at bringing back this ancient knowledge to life out there in the human race and inside each one of us. Off the Left Eye is Curtis Childs, director, producer, and host. Karen Childs, writer, community manager, and host. Chelsea Odner, writer, production manager, and host. And Jonathan Rose, host and series editor of the NCE. Shada Sullivan is the voice you love in our narrations. Stuart Farmer is our technical director. Matthew Childs, our video art director. Our motion designers are Meng Jong and Jesse Johnson. Reed McArdle made our music. Devin Osblond is our production intern. Cara Dom is our Latin consultant extraordinaire, and Chris Dunn is our digital marketing magician. And you are our much-loved listener. And now you can journey with us all week. Every Monday's Swedenborg and Life episode, including this one, has a week's worth of content lined up to support you in your exploration of these life-changing ideas. All video content premieres at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and 7 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time on the Off the Left Eye YouTube, Facebook, and Simplecast channels. On Tuesdays, find us on social media or go to offtheleftei.com to get custom downloadable art paired with the week's topic to ground you through the week. On Wednesdays, join us to dig a little deeper into the week's topic with news from heaven. On Thursdays, we want to hear from you. We'll be sharing a new reflection question weekly on our community tab and social media channels. Then join us for Swedenborg Live on Fridays for our panel Q&A show. And listen every Sunday to the Inside Off the Left Eye podcast to always know what we're up to and what you can look forward to. 
If you want to help sustain Off the Left Eye's operations, consider becoming a monthly donor today. And right now, we have a matching gift challenge from a very generous donor couple where dollar for dollar up to $10,000 will be matched when you make a new or increased monthly donation. You can provide a direct gift or restrict it to our new Off the Left Eye Endowment Fund. Giving to the Endowment Fund is a great way to guarantee that your gifts live on to help Off the Left Eye forever. Go to otle.cosvox.com to become part of our essential community of donors. From all of us here at Off the Left Eye, we thank you.